This is how Dina Rubio is using the new tax cuts at Don Ramon Restaurant. When we heard that the tax cut had passed, it was hallelujah time. We can now go ahead with our plans to expand. We would like to hire more people and back to the employees that already have been with us for a while. Job Creators Network has given us a voice. If you're a business owner, tell us how you're using the tax cuts. Go to taxcutswork.com and share your comments. That's taxcutswork.com. Blog Talk Radio. If I speak for your followers and I speak for your ex-followers and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says, don't listen to your mom and dad, don't talk to your mom and dad, that's bad, yeah. run. Absolutely believe his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yes, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. Okay, welcome to Come Get Some Extra Scientology with Karen Presley, part two, the author of the book Escaping Scientology, Wonderful Lady. Um, I've had a hell of a week, guys, hell of a week. Um, I have to announce that uh, very shortly, uh, Come Get Some Extra will be coming to a close. I am I'm just not going to podcast for a long, long, long time, if ever again. Um, I decided a long time ago, uh, especially with this subject, um, whether it be within the X community, off air or on air, or any of my involvement in the fight against Scientology, that if my efforts in some way um, started to become or seem to be more damaging than helpful, uh, that I would stop doing the podcast. I know that sounds kind of cryptic, and there's a much more detailed explanation, a much more meaningful reason uh, for why I'm stepping away uh, from the subject of Scientology. I just really sincerely, guys, I don't have the words today, um, and I don't want to focus on that with so much incredible content coming up over the next month and a half uh, before I, I close up here. Uh, a lot of important stuff, so uh, I, I promise you I will find the words, and I'll give you a better explanation uh, down the road here. But um, today I got a great second part with Karen Presley. Uh, next week you're going to hear from Claire Headley. I've tried for the better part of a year to get Claire on. Finally got her, and she was amazing. And she talked about some things uh, that you don't really hear her talk about a lot, if at all. Uh, so it's very important that you catch Claire. And after Claire will be uh, Sina Kamula. We've already ha- uh, recorded our interview uh, if you think you knew Sina was a sweet girl with a with a great heart and very strong strong uh, presence about her, you don't you don't know yet. <laughs> you'll you'll hear from her. She's amazing and has some great insight. And uh, and then uh, Tara Riley, um, you know, Tara Riley, we talked for three hours. 
Uh, so that's going to be split up into three parts for you guys. But uh, she said you talked about a lot of things you didn't expect, we didn't expect to talk about. Um, between Sina and Tara, uh, be forewarned there, um, going into those interviews, those are going to be heavy on the uh, on the subject of suicide. Um, and I'll I'll be putting that suicide hotline back up there for those. Um, and then I'm going to be wrapping it up. Uh, with a, a wonderful conversation that I know we're going to have that we uh, have been talking a long time about. Miriam Francis and I will will have a discussion, uh, again, talking about some things you haven't heard about yet. Uh, some amazing, amazing content that I'm very proud of. I'm proud of everything I've done on this show. And um, one thing I'll say since I'm saying I'm quitting the show is um, something that hit me pretty good uh, was at the end of the conversation you're here with Sina. She said it's the most uh, – most of sincerity, she said, uh, thank you for letting me have a voice. And that was uh, that was tough because I knew I was going to announce this. But uh, I promise you guys, uh, uh, if anyone ever had a story to tell, they felt wasn't being told, or they needed to be feel empowered to get their voice out and talk, uh, they can do it here on Come Get Some Extra. So since I am closing it as a regular podcast after Miriam, um, if I'm contacted CGS here at gmail.com and you have a compelling, well, it doesn't have to be compelling. You need to speak. You need to be heard. You need to uh, get it out. Feel free to email me and I'll set up a show just for you. Um, I'll do it on a request case by case basis. And uh, Tara wanted to do more shows. And because she has so much to say and get out that really, uh, in my opinion, just in three hours, like blew my mind how much information that I was able to get. Uh, from that conversation. I will talk to Tara more. Um, so in the meantime, let's go ahead and let's get right down to it. Here's part two of Karen Presley. Humiliation is a big piece of how Miscavige runs things, it sounds like. Absolutely. Um, have you come to any sections like that in my book yet where you were shocked by David Miscavige? Your first reference. Your first reference to it. Just uh, a bunch of people not knowing what they're supposed to do, and you uh, you stepping up and saying, "Oh, I'll do it," and not having any clue what he what he's looking for. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. That happens all the time. Um, I think that David Miscavige. Um, I hope I can express this well enough. I I think I cover it really well in my book, but David Miscavige draws power from nullifying other people. Um, he, he really conducts himself as if he's larger than life, and he, he used to walk around the space as such, dominating. Um, there's a term in Scientology called domination by nullification, and what he does, he uses humiliation and invalidation to put people down and make them feel stupid and humiliated. And then hmm. they become they become susceptible to um, to him. And as I talk about in my book, uh, we would look at him and we would appreciate things like being able to go home on time like at midnight <laughs> and being able to sleep at night um, or being able to eat regular meal instead of beans and rice. In other words, he had it all, all set up so that, you know, we were constantly in punishment or discipline mode. He would assign us 
wrong ethics commissions, and we would have to do all these various punishment and amends. And then when we were living, able to live a regular life, like eat regular meals and sleep in our beds at night, we would feel so grateful to him. And see, that was a very sick uh, codependency that he set up. He created it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he draws on it. He, he lives on it. That's like food for him. Kind of like a vampire that sucks blood. For him, he sucks the spirit, the soul, right out of people. And then ends up using it to control them. So, I think my next book, I'm going to write about that. <laughs> I, it's, it's a whole subject. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole psychological issue that really deserves a lot of attention. And I give it a lot of attention in my book. I don't know if you've read the chapter yet called Chairman of the Board RTC. I don't remember now. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's later. It's been. It's like chapter 35 or so. I may have read but, it. Um, okay, I cover, you know, my interpretation of of who he is as a man, as an individual, and you know, his treatment of his own father, Ron Miscavige, was a horribly sad example of domination by nullification. You know, just diminishing his father's presence, diminishing his own father's role as a father, and um, treating him as just a peon, as a minion, and putting him down in front of other people. See, that was that was David Miscavige's stock and trade. Um, unfortunately, my husband, Peter Schlesk, fell into that with him. Um, very typical of David Miscavige, who, by the way, is not a skilled musician. And my husband at the time, Peter Schlesk, was an award-winning musician and <laughs> composer. So, but within Goldair Productions, David Miscavige was constantly criticizing Peter's music and putting him down. Um, and I'm like, okay, what is, what is David Miscavige's qualification for judging Peter's or any of the other musicians' music. None. He had no musical ability, but because he makes himself the uh, the most important one at the base, the only one who can get anything done, he judges everybody else's work. And then, you know, he ended up destroying Peter. He has sucked all the life out of Peter's life. And I just want to bring up, without dwelling on this point too much, did you happen to see Tony Ortega's article about uh, the woman, the uh, Aftermath fan, Aaron Hodges Plum, yep. who went to the in-face with a copy of my book? Did you see that story? Yeah, I did. Okay. Very pathetic. I mean, it's, in one way, it was really uh, just outrageously exciting that Aaron accomplished that, you know, infiltrating the in-face with a copy of my book. But the fact that my husband, Peter Schleff, happened to be playing there, and she walked up to him and gave him a copy of this book. She took a photo of him. Looking away, yeah. I had to enlarge it to look closely at it to identify that that was really him. Mm. Because he, he looked so ashen, and his face was chalky, and he was so thin. I almost cried when I saw the picture. And yet, he's a very man who just you know, he he videoed uh, an attack piece on me after I appeared on 
uh, Leah Remini's show, episode six, and Peter said some of the most vile things that I've ever heard anybody say about any other contributors. So here was my husband, my ex-husband, saying this about me, but, you know, even though he said all those horrible things about me, when I saw the photo that Aaron gave us, and I saw how ashen and chalky and thin Peter was, all I could feel was compassion for him. Yeah. Of like, how did this man, who was an award-winning musician-composer, how did he sink to such a pathetic, low place in his life? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that question is, he chose to stay at the end base, and David Miscavige destroyed him. Now, they, they refer to these videos as POW-style videos to get your ex-friends and your ex-family uh, and, and, uh, and married partners to say things about you, your children, your parents, whoever, to say things yeah. negative about you, to discredit you. And what I find interesting, uh, first of all, just sort of off, off to the side of this, they never say anything of substance. It's all just you were nobody, you were nothing, which is really kind of an interesting way to talk about another human being from a church perspective. Um, right. You're nothing. Yeah. Uh, really? But the um, these POW style videos, I find a lot of people claim, you know, they think these, these family members and these friends are told to say this and they didn't want to. I imagine to some degree, and maybe in, in Peter's case, there's a degree of feeling betrayed because uh, while he chose Scientology over his career and over his wife, over you, he might feel you chose not Scientology over him. Right. Yeah. And that's like a bigger deal to him. Absolutely. It's it's huge to him. And he wrote it in a letter. You know, he told, you know, after we split up, I didn't hear from him uh, other than the phone calls the first couple of days after I left. I didn't hear from him for almost a year. And in his letter, one of his letters, he uses the word abandoned. He said that I abandoned him. And he also um, quoted that word in uh, a, a letter or a story or something that the Tampa Bay Times did on um, spouses who split up when one spouse left and the other one stayed in. And he used the term that I abandoned him. So um, very clearly that is how he felt. And I don't know if he still feels that way, but... That is what happened. And so for him, the fact that I left Scientology, of course, was a suppressive act. And then that he felt that I abandoned him. So I, you know, in his eyes, I committed two two unforgivable acts. And so for that, he disconnected from me. And that was, you know, I experienced Scientology's very cruel disconnection policy Yeah. for that reason. And for me, you know, was the opposite. I was, you know, capturing my life, trying to salvage the life that I still had and trying to actually regain my freedom. So for me, it was the exact opposite because I, I saw Scientology as a fraud and as a trap. He saw Scientology as a religion and, you know, the only answer to mankind's problems. So, you know... Peter and I had gotten to opposite ends of the spectrum regarding our beliefs. Yeah, when, and, uh, when people read the book, they're going to see that basically you felt 
abandoned long before that, while you were still there. Um, if that's an appropriate... Thank you for saying that. Yeah. That, 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 thank you for saying that. That is definitely... I, I was hoping that that was a, a very evident message in the book, because, well, I would like to know why you're saying that, because that means a lot to me. Well, <laughs> um, you described three escape attempts that you would have absolutely successfully, on two of the first two, would have successfully gotten away and never had to go back. And mm-hmm. you went back, you were convinced to go back, uh, because of, of of a marriage that was important to you. And the first thing he did was uh, say, see you as you got hauled away to the RPF. Yeah. That was a little bit uh, jarring to see. And that's something that apparently happens to a lot of people. Yeah. You need to be yeah, punished, you know. and he knew you needed to be punished. That was his mindset. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I've been out for 19 years, and even as you say that, I feel kind of a bit of a stab in my heart. You know, it's uh, I hadn't thought about that in a while, and yeah, you're absolutely right, and it hurt. And um, you know, <clears throat> I think that people who are trapped in the sea org are they live within a state of denial to some extent. You know, where you're denying that what you're doing is wrong. You're trying to convince yourself constantly that it's the right thing to do, but I was in denial that Peter had abandoned our marriage, really, for the Sea Org, because he became more loyal to the Sea Org than he was to our marriage at that point. So It's a conversation I hear like over and over again on, on Leah Remini's show and in the articles I read. It, 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 it's just the pattern that I keep hearing. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, the, it's the thought control. It's the mind, it's the mind control. Some people use the word brainwashing, but, you know, it's like, you know, my question was always, why is Peter so sold out? Why is he so locked in and I'm not? And I think it had a lot to do with my job because as a designer, I was constantly going off the base, working with outside vendors, and, you know, I was one of the few people at the end base who had to go outside to do my job. And for that reason, I stayed connected to the outside world, and I think to that extent, I stayed connected to reality. Um, Whereas Peter, you know, he lived in his own bubble. He lived in a music studio. He recorded music morning, noon, and night. He didn't watch TV or read newspapers. He was just completely... All he ever heard from was David Miscavige. So that's all he knew. And I did not live like that, so I was able to hang on to my sanity through my connection to the outside world, where he was actually cut off. Absolutely, and he did that to himself to an extent. He didn't he didn't want to see, which is we see a lot with the public, uh, the, the few public left. Um, I agree. He, it's a choice. It, it is a choice. And, you know, I, that's why, you know, when, after Aaron Hodges Plum infiltrated the in-base with my book and then the, the photos hit the news, a lot of people were expressing compassion and sadness for Peter. And some people wrote to me and asked about that, and I said, you know what, of course I feel 
compassionate for him because he's he's a prisoner of war. He's a POW. He is trapped, and he's not even aware of being trapped. He thinks he's, you know, achieving spiritual freedom. But he lives behind locked fences. He has somebody in control of his autonomy, his mobility, 24-7. And so he has no freedom at all, but he does not see that. And so you have to ask the question, okay, do we feel compassion for people like that? Or do we say, you know what, that is a choice. It's a choice, and you can escape just like anybody else can escape. I escaped and made it. Hmm. A lot of people escaped and made it. Mike Rinder escaped. Mark Headley escaped. Claire Headley escaped. Lots of people escaped. So you have to, it gets down to, for me, it's really rough. Because in one, you know, in one breath, I feel compassionate towards Peter because he's so brainwashed. But in another one, I say, you know what? I got out. You can get out, too. So it's a choice. And I think that, you know, he's still been there 19 years after I left. That's a choice. And so when you choose that life, you also choose all the repercussions. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge the word escape has come up a bunch of times. And uh, anytime someone talks about leaving in base, the word escape is associated with it. That is, uh, that's a tough pill to swallow that uh, people are leaving a religion by way of escape. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it just, it, it, never, it, it keeps coming back to me because you hear it all the time. And I think, I think for a lot in the ex community, a lot in the critic community, it just becomes so matter of fact to talk about escaping. But it, it, it it's, it's escaping. <laughs> it's not leaving. It's escaping. It's crazy. You know what? You're right, and I'm really glad you bring that up. Um, because the word escaping, escaping Scientology, it's almost become normalized. And yet, if you really look at that, it's like, why the hell should someone have to escape to get out of a religion? Right. And, you know, the point you're bringing up to me is really significant. Um, people are not free to just walk out the gate and say, uh, I changed my mind. I'm leaving now. Thank you so much. I wish you a good life. I mean, that's not the kind of conversation that will ever happen. They, You have to go through their procedures. You have to do it on their terms. You have to, um, like Jefferson Hawkins uh, actually wrote a book called Counterfeit Dreams, and he wrote the story about how he wanted, he told them that he wanted to leave. Instead of escaping, he went out on their per, on their policy, on their process. Oh God! And he <laughs> he spent months, months trying to get out. And actually, Gary Jackson Moorhead, same thing. He was months, almost a year, trying to get out on their terms. And that's why I didn't bother to try because I saw what other people had to go through to get out. And I thought it was torture. Yeah. And physical torture. And I was not going to subject myself to that. So I left on my terms instead of theirs. And that is the only way to get out. I mean, that that's the way to get out. You have to escape. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of like a wear-down process. It's like, a, well, maybe if we make you go through all these steps, you'll just give up. And that happens, I bet. Well, 
absolutely, that's the point. The point is, is to wear you down so that you do give up. I mean, you know, the first two times I left, I, I escaped. But I came back because security guards came after me and just coerced me into giving it another try. And in both cases, when I came back, I was sequestered out at a building where at, it was called the Old Greenskeeper's House, and I was there by myself. Couldn't connect with my husband, couldn't connect with anybody else except security guards. And I just did labor around the old greenskeeper's house, out in the greenhouse or whatever, and uh, had no sane conversations because there was no one else to talk to. You're, you're completely sequestered, except, like I say, with security guards. And you're put through that, and you're, you're taken in for sessions or security checks, interrogations. Uh, and this goes on for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And you keep asking, when is this going to be done? When is this going to be done? And you never get an answer. And the whole point is, it's endless. It will never end. They just are trying to wear you down. Because they want you to wear down and give up. And just give in and decide to stay. So that's why so many people escape instead of going through that procedure because it's torture. Um, and I, I'll bring up, uh, you haven't read this yet in the book, but in one of the later chapters, I talk about um, after I escaped the third time, how I actually went back to Los Angeles to, quote-unquote, route out uh, the right way, their way. And I did that partly because I had left my car in L.A. and I had to drive it back home. <laughs> I, I went back to get it, but my mother came with me. And she served as my insurance to make sure that I would get out. Right. But I was told by the OSA people, Office of Special Affairs, that we would be doing this for three or four days, spec test, and then it would be done. Well, I was there for four weeks, and it still wasn't done. It still wasn't done. Mm -hmm. It still wasn't done. And they just were trying to get me to change my mind, stay in the Sea Org, and they were wearing me down. And my mother was saying, Karen, don't you see that? That they're just trying to wear you down. This is like survival of the fittest. And when I finally realized that, I said, that's it, I'm done. And I'm not going to tell the rest of that because it's covered in my book. Yeah, read the book, people. <laughs> She's telling you everything. I'm sorry, I, I get you to talk about everything. <laughs> it's one of the best stories in the book. So, well, it, anyway. Isn't it ranked, rank like, top six on Amazon or something? In the cult, yeah, you know, Amazon has categories, and in the in the in the uh, category of religious cult, and there are tons of books in there. As of uh, two days ago, it was number six. Today, it's number four. Yes, all right, <laughs> good deal. So, got to keep it going. So I know we're running short on time here. Um, I have ten questions. You know what ten questions are. I believe. Yeah. Okay, I have that for you. Uh, before we do that, there was something that we really wanted to focus on, and now in short time, I got to bring it up now, and that was cover-ups within Scientology. You talked earlier about the Lisa McPherson case. Now, I don't think you knew exactly what was going on, but you knew something was wrong. Is Am I, am I characterizing that correctly? Yeah, I was told something was wrong the day I arrived at Flag um, when one of the executives in CMO... Uh, Clearwater, which is Commodore's messenger, told me, she said, listen, I can't help you right now. We 
somebody, some chick just died in the Fort Harrison, and we're trying to get the information about her and who is the auditor and the case supervisor. And she said, this is such devastating, but when this is over with, I'll be glad to help you get settled in. And I said, I said, somebody died in the Fort Harrison? What are you talking about? She said, I don't have time to talk about it, but it's just step T. Real quick, real quick. You have to say it. Okay, go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. I was going to ask you what Dev T was. Dev T is short for developed traffic. It's D-E-V hyphen T. And it, it, it's a slang term that is like, this is a hassle. Or it's, it's like gotcha. special traffic that's developing around a hassle. So that's how she referred to Lisa McPherson's death. This is Dev T. Mm. It's just a hassle. And that that's when I first heard of it. And uh, and then, you know, it, none of it unfolded until after I got out of the York. Nobody in RTC would talk to me about it. It was all covered up. But that is what really opened my eyes to Scientology's... <sighs> I think the thing that Scientology's most expert at is cover-up. Using public relations cover-up situations, and in my chapter in my book called Cover-Up, I expose, I mean, none of these things are completely new to people who have been, you know, in Scientology as an base, but there's so many new member, new people who are watching Scientology who don't know anything about this, but in that chapter, I name so many different things that Scientology covered up with public relations, and I will say that I am I apologize for my own contribution to any anything that I helped to cover up because much of it was unwittingly. Um, you know, in a lot of cases I didn't even realize the depth of what we were doing. But for example, the reason I was at the Flag Land Base when I was was because Shelley Miscavige um, had me come down there to completely make over the image of the flag land-based staff to get them out of the military uniforms because it was uh, an object of dissension that separated Clearwater locals from Scientology. Uh, Scientologists looked like weirdos dressed in military outfits. <laughs> and so my job was to dress them in, like, upscale business clothes that were suitable for the tropical climate of Clearwater. And, but the thing, the point being, I was brought down there like all of a sudden. And I didn't know why it was all of a sudden a rush to make over the black staff. Well, that was part of the cover up because Lisa McPherson had just died. And so Scientology was working very hard on its public relations. And I was part of that whole uh, thing was to make Scientology look at in Clearwater just to remove one of the one of the many objections that people in Clearwater had towards Scientology. So there's many other stories like that in my book, but once I realized how I was part of that, I was so pissed that I was a dupe yeah. in that in that experience. And uh, that's just one of many that I write about. Yeah, it sounds to me like they only keep like a shirt amount of people, like maybe four or five people in the know of exactly what happened and then they had people unwittingly 
carry out orders, and in the end, uh, you know, you got that that deniability factor. Um, I've seen that with. You're absolutely right. Yeah, Len, Len Zimberg talks about that when he was a volunteer for the Guardian's office before it was Osa taking uh, Paula Cooper's diary pages to her father. You know, he had no idea what he was delivering. He had no idea why, but uh, he was told that this needed yeah. to be done uh, to this person. So yeah, you don't you don't know what you're doing. That is a, that is a great point. I mean, we're given orders to carry out. It's kind of like being in the military, and you're giving an order to carry out, and you don't question uh, who is giving you the order. You're assuming that this is part of a a closely calculated strategy in the military. In mm-hmm. Scientology, you're given an order, and you could be a dupe, a, a pawn in um, some sort of strategy that you know where you're covering up a crime and you don't even know you don't even know what you're what you're doing it for. You know, so you're you're used. You know, you're just you're just a pawn in the game, like Len Sinberg said. Yeah. Alright, this is a lot of great information. Uh, look, it's a 41 chapter book. She didn't give you everything today, guys. But <laughs> definitely read Carrie's book. It's really worth reading. Uh, it is one of the best books out today, I think. Um, I'm going to go ahead and move on to 10 questions okay. with Karen Presley. So, question number one Three things overheard in the RPF. Three things overheard in the RPF? Yeah. That's so funny. <laughs> Um, that Stephanie Silcock was, who was a celebrity auditor, was on the RPS RPS, which is the worst. Um, gosh. Oh, I'm joining this link. Go to the next one. Yeah, I'm not trying to start gossip either, man. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wanted you to be clever and funny, Karen. Thanks for letting me that. No, I'm kidding. That's fine. <laughs> Number two, true or false, David Miscavige can at least reach the bottom shelf. Control through negative negation thing. It's also called Napoleon complex. Um, but <laughs> moving along, number three, would you rather serve in the RPF or would you rather read Kirstie Alley's Twitter feed? <laughs> I'll take the RPF any day. Wow. <laughs> Just saying something. Number four, uh, complete the sentence. The truth will. Say it again. I didn't hear you. Sorry. Complete this sentence. The truth will. The truth will guide you out of Scientology. <laughs> I hope so. Somebody listening. Somebody listening. Tell somebody who needs to listen. Number five. Uh, what's your favorite animation ever? Do you have any favorite animations from your childhood? From any time? From now? Anywhere? Oh, my favorite animation? Pinocchio. Pinocchio. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, I loved watching his nose grow when he. <laughs> Wouldn't it solve all these problems if people's nose just grew and they told lies? Well, it's so funny because I've actually thought about Miss Cavish Pinocchio. Like, this guy would have a nose that would never make it through the door. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I think number six is an easy one. True or false, it's never too late to find happiness. Very true. Very true. Number seven, pudding or jello? <laughs> pudding, chocolate. 
podcast. I don't have put in that much anymore. I need some. Number eight. Um, I heard this question brought up a lot, and since you worked at Celebrity Center and were around some of those guys, um, who do you have the most hope for? Which celebrity is the next layer remedy? Ooh, um, I'm hoping somebody like Ann Archer, who is an intelligent woman. I have a hard time seeing that after the way she talked to John Sweeney, but a lot of people talked that way to John Sweeney, didn't they? <laughs> Mike Ritter talked that way to John Sweeney, so... But but her son, uh, Tommy Davis, is out also. Well, he's out of Sea Org. Right. I don't know still I don't know if he's out of Scientology. How much is he rocking the boat? Yeah, I wish I wish for Ann Archer. She's an intelligent woman. I'm okay. think about that. Did you know her? There's gonna be other writers. Other writers, like Mark Isham, the musician David Campbell. Okay. I'm hoping for them. Okay. Is it is it easier from your eyes from what you saw? And I know we're running out of time. Is it easier for you to, uh, in your eyes, for celebrities at a higher level to turn a blind eye? Is just easier. Absolutely, because um, very important point, and I write about this in my book. Um, celebrities turn a blind eye because they are so supported by Scientology. Right. That the perk, the perk outweigh the integrity. The perks outweigh the need for integrity. And that is what draws the line in the sand between Paul Haggis and Lee Remini and the others, is they both have such personal integrity. Yeah. I, I, I become infuriated when I see John DeVolta say, well, why would I look at something so decidedly negative? It was good for me. They're good to me. Well, right. I'm glad you're taking care of uh, Mr. DeVolta. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, number nine. Halloween's coming up. What's the best Halloween costume you've ever seen? Anything creative you've seen? Or, or you probably designed some. <laughs> no, I never did. Oh, God. Halloween. Wow. Um, I was I was a, I was a box one. <laughs> <laughs> so simple. No, no, I'll, right? <laughs> I'll I was a laundry bag one. And I won the best I was As a launch bag? With a, with a drawstring on top. And nobody knew who I was, and I didn't say anything. But I was walking around, and I won best costume for being a laundry bag. I think because you owned it. You were probably the most <laughs> believable laundry bag out there. <laughs> <laughs> I guess so. Finally, number 10. What is your favorite podcast that I host? <laughs> well, the favorite podcast that you host is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Good job. Good deal. <laughs> you know, I, I love your podcast. I, I listen to most of your most of yours. Other than ours, my favorite has been the one with Lee Remini. I, I see that. <laughs> I see that and I appreciate that. I really do. Um, yeah. uh, do you have a website, Karen? I do. It's www.escapingscientology.com. It covers my book. It covers all the extra book material that um, I talk about in my book. I have all this other additional material. It has a photo gallery. It has a blog. And it has links to media if anyone's interested in seeing any videos and uh, reading stories and things that I've exposed about Scientology. 
And Jeffrey Hawkins was hugely involved in helping out with that in your book and all that, wasn't he? With the design? Jeffrey Hawk Jefferson Hawkins designed my book cover and I he his work has gotten so many compliments for his beautiful design. That's good. And he also designed the entire website. So I wanna mention that um well this this is kind of a secret, but Jeffrey Jeff Hawkins and I are going to be collaborating on a project in the very near future. And um, yeah, <laughs> uh, it's going to be good. And we're going to talk about it one of these days soon. Okay, I'll, I'll link that uh, your website uh, onto the podcast. And is there anything else, anything else you want to talk about before we go? We covered so much good stuff, Chris. I would love to talk with you again. And um, absolutely, I just want to thank you for being there and doing your great work. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for being on the show. It really means a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. All right, so there it is, Karen Presley. Um, next week, you're going to find uh, – I'm going to put out the entire iron change of uh, Clara Headley. You don't want to miss it. It's amazing. Uh, again, she talked about some things you may never heard before, and she is one of the strongest speakers <clears throat> on on the subject. Uh, until then, uh, please do stay connected, and uh, that about sums it up. If I speak for your followers, and I speak for your ex-followers, and I speak for the curious outsiders looking in, and you remain silent in the shadows and don't let your balls drop enough to come out and say something, then I say, who do you speak for, Mr. Miscavige? Anything on earth that says... Don't listen to your mum and dad. Don't talk to your mum and dad. That bad. Yeah. Wrong. Absolutely believed his own bullshit. Now, does that mean he believed it from day one? I don't know. Hubbard reveals to them that he is the Antichrist. Scientology has not helped you. You have helped yourself. Yeah, I'm absolutely positive that happened because I was physically abused in Scientology. We're crossing the line into torture. Do you think there is a rape culture in Scientology? I think that there is a culture in Scientology that children are not children. So, yeah. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Oh, what a great audience. Let's dim the lights for this next one. Nope, too much. Ah, there it is. Gotta get things just right. Like Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Tell us what you want to pay and we help you find coverage options that fit your budget. And now, the mood is right. Wait, the lights are back on again. Trudy, can you? And now it's completely dark. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.